So let's turn in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we turn our attention to your word where we hear that you are good. And we pray that we would open our hearts to you as we receive this word, that you would expose every way in which we resist that fundamental truth about who you are that we would see clearly the good gift of your Son, this embodiment of your perfect love for us, and that by your Spirit we would um, be renewed in this knowledge, that we would grow in confidence, that we would boldly ask, that we would entrust ourselves to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're continuing, um, nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but we're continuing our series where we've been thinking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, we've been using the word apprentice, and so we've said to be an apprentice of Jesus or a disciple entails at least these three things. First, that we come to Jesus and that we spend time with Jesus, and then secondly, that we develop the character of Jesus, and then finally, that we begin to do the things that Jesus does. So that's what we've been seeing over and over again as Jesus has proclaimed this new kingdom community as he's delivered this sermon. In the past couple weeks, he's been targeting the practices of piety of the Pharisees, and he's been talking about our anxiety. And last week, we saw how he dealt with judgmentalism and, and pride. And today, we're going to be asking the question, who do we entrust ourselves to as individuals and as a church? And I mean this on a very sort of practical level, level as we ask that question. To whom do we show loyalty in order to receive protection and provision? That's the question I want you to be thinking about and, and asking yourself about. Now, we have learned a lot in the last few decades um, from psychologists and sociologists, people studying what it means to be human and how different experiences affect us and how children develop. And we know that people need safety and their basic needs in order to develop in a healthy way. Uh, we know this, that we can watch how children develop and we see that environments where there's high levels of stress, uh, there's poverty, where there's a lot of uh, lack of safety, that affects the ability of that person to grow up and develop in a healthy way because these elevated stress hormones impact development. And it's true of an adult as well. If you go through prolonged periods of stress, and your hormone levels are high, that can affect your, um, your body's health over time. We all need safety. We all need have basic needs. This is the way God made us. And so all of us are looking to certain things 
We call upon them. We trust in those things to bring us provision and safety in our lives. And this is true as we think more broadly about the church. We live in a time where there um, does seem to be this increasing opposition uh, in our culture to what we believe, historic Christianity, what we teach about how we're to live, what it means to be human. And as we think about this increased pressure or resistance or hostility, we have to ask ourselves, what are we looking toward? Who are we looking toward to have a sense of protection and provision? All of us do this in some way. We all entrust ourselves. And so I want us to think about that and dwell on that. And in order to dwell on that question and to think about what it means to follow Jesus and grow as his disciple, um, we have to confront and consider our basic vision of who God is. So that's where we're going um, today. So I'm going to introduce this idea of, um, that's kind of in the text of Scripture through, through many different places, but it's maybe hidden to us. And it's this idea of patronage. Patronage is a, a relational system where a rich and powerful figure provides material support and protection um, in exchange for clients um, showing some sort of loyalty to the patron's agenda. Okay, um, This was sort of woven into the fabric of much of the world um, for many, many, many years. It definitely was part of the ancient world in which the Bible was written. The ancient world ran on these sorts of arrangements, and that's why honor and shame were so important to a lot of ancient Near Eastern cultures. Patrons would uh, try to develop and gain honor for themselves and clout by having lots of clients that were loyal to them and would tout their honor, um, and then they were to be faithful to the expectations of their clients by providing for their needs, and there was this exchange going on between people who received from the rich and powerful and then gave their loyalty back to the rich and powerful. That was very much how the ancient world ran. The medieval world, in many ways, ran this way as well. You had lords and serfs. And I would even say that today, patronage still exists, but in a hidden way in our culture today, often it's hidden in the markets that we trust in. I give to you, you give back to me, I am loyal to you, I show faithfulness to you, you do me favors. It's a very natural way for people to relate to one another. So patronage, just uh, it's all throughout Scripture. It's in our passage today. Now, there's another way of living in the world that I would say is sort of a reaction against this, and it's um, something very much touted today, which is the idea of self-reliance. And self-reliance is this unwillingness to entrust ourselves to other people, to rely only on ourselves. And this is, um, this is I kind of think, in the ethos of American culture, but some of us have experience in our lives that makes us more prone to live this way, right? If we have been hurt deeply by people that we trusted, um, consciously or not, we often develop this, this sort of commitment to never entrust ourselves to other people. And we put up a lot of barriers um, to being known or being dependent on other people. We become very guarded. Um, we reject all forms of vulnerability, and we, we try to sort of make it on our own. But interestingly, even self-reliant people are in hidden ways trusting, entrusting themselves to ideologies, markets, money, uh, institutions, all sorts of other things that they are looking for, for protection and provision. So patronage, self-reliance, these are different ways of living in the world, but in, at, at the end of the day, there's a sense in which everybody is entrusting themselves to someone or something. And so I want us to be asking, who do we entrust ourselves to? 
So Jesus addresses this and speaks to this in verse 6. And that's where I want to turn first. And um, you're going to maybe laugh at these points headings, but uh, the first point is patron pigs, okay? Uh, And I think you'll understand why as we read through this. So verse 6 again, Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now this verse um, is probably introducing, I believe, a new subject from what Jesus had talked about last week, where he talked about judgmentalism, right? Um, But it does have a connection in that it is warning us to not become simpletons. It's calling for a level of discernment here in how we live our lives. Now, most people, and you've probably heard the gospel, uh, this verse taught this way in the past, most people interpret this verse as speaking to um, our uh, stewardship of the gospel message, this holy thing, and we're to be discerning and not put the word of God or the gospel of God before people who can't appreciate it or who are hostile to it in some way. Don't waste your time with those sorts of people. I think that's a pretty common, pretty prevalent interpretation of this verse. But I want us to look a little bit closely, and I think we'll see that it's, I think it's aimed at something different, actually. Um, Notice the structure of the verse here and these two phrases Jesus uses. Um, Some point out that it's it's a chiasm, so it's sort of goes from A to B to B to back to A again, okay? And so there's a sort of parallelism going on. Don't give to dogs what is holy, and then look at the last phrase, so that they don't turn on you and attack you. And then in the middle, don't throw your pearls before pigs. They'll trample over them, okay? And think about these images of of pigs and dogs. If you think about Scripture and how those terms are used and what they represent, you'll uh, realize that these are references to the Roman Empire and to the Gentile world more broadly. It's sort of veiled. I don't think Jesus is coming right out and saying it, partly because he doesn't want to provoke unnecessary hostility. But his hearers, especially the Jews, would have known this is a reference to the Roman powers. This is a reference to the Gentile world. That's what pigs and dogs often represented. And he's saying um, that these dogs will tear you apart Um, They will trample over you. That language of trampling is uh, the language of warfare and armies, uh, you know, walking over people, chariots running over people. And so um, what is Jesus saying not to do? Think about the action. He's saying don't throw or cast your pearls before swine, before this Roman empire. What does it mean to cast your pearls before a power like that? Well, Think about the the idea, we sometimes talk about casting our crowns before Jesus, right? Or you're casting something valuable before a powerful figure as an act of homage, as an act of loyalty to them. And and so then he uses the other phrase, don't give what is holy. Don't entrust holy things to dogs. So what I think Jesus is actually getting to here is he's warning his disciples not to entrust themselves to worldly powers. Don't Don't look to them for protection and provision. Don't give them holy things. Don't entrust the kingdom to them as if they're going to be caretakers of the church. This is not a new teaching in Scripture. In fact, this is a very old, old teaching that the prophets constantly had to tell Israel. Throughout the story of Israel, God had promised his people that he would provide for them and he would protect them. And he warned them, do not make alliances with the kingdoms of this world. Don't make alliances with the Canaanites and other Gentile nations because they will not actually keep you safe. 
But Israel repeatedly made political calculations in the history of their nation, seeking economic opportunity and seeking protection from other political powers. And so they were constantly uh, drawn into alliances with Canaanites. You see this in the book of Judges. We, you see it um, being drawn into alliances with Aram and Syria and Egypt and even Babylon. You see this in the book of Kings. There's this draw to try to find safety, find wealth by allying themselves with these other nations and empires. And every time they did that, they were caught up in worshiping the gods of the other nations. It always involved idolatry because you would have to recognize the gods of these other nations in order to form an alliance with them. And so the loyalty to Yahweh was compromised. They would offer some sort of honor to these other gods. That inevitably would lead to injustices in Israel. And then foreign nations, foreign gods would betray Israel and they would end up being oppressed and they would cry out in need of redemption. And this cycle goes on throughout the Old Testament. The church is always, and at every time in history, through though in varying degrees, it is a threat to worldly powers. It's always a threat to worldly powers, and therefore it is always a target of persecution and opposition. The kingdom of God in every culture, in every place, will always affirm certain aspects of culture, transform some dimensions of that culture, and confront many aspects of that culture. And that is always going to be viewed as a threat because we will not be bought, we will not be loyal to these gods and to these powers. At least that's what's supposed to happen, right? And we see that Jesus, who is our master, was persecuted, and we're not above our master as his servants. We're going to be persecuted as well. So whether we're in China or India or Germany or Nigeria, whether it's communism or Hinduism or capitalism or Islam or secularism, whatever the ideology, the church always lives under the threat of opposition and even death because our fundamental confession is that Jesus is Lord. And that means there can be no ultimate loyalty to any power. Jesus is Lord means that we can cooperate and join hands with at times others, but we cannot ever bow the knee to worldly powers. And yet the church has done this over and over again, entrusting itself to worldly powers, letting the worldly powers dictate how we're going to live, what we're going to value in order to gain protection from them. And what Jesus is teaching about here fits into this prophetic tradition where the prophets say, watch out. This is not going to work for you. Turn back to God. Look to him. It always is a temptation for the church and for each of us individually. And I think it's especially important that we see that that's going on even right now. The church in our place is increasingly tempted to look to political powers, worldly powers, for protection from what we rightly see as increased hostility to our message and to the things that we believe as Christians about what it means to be human and especially sexuality, right? We see there's this aggressive agenda, no doubt, to confuse our children about sex, about what it means to be human. This is definitely going on. And we see increased uh, destabilization in our culture. And it's very easy for us to become anxious about this, to become fearful about this, and to say, who can we look to that will save us from what is happening and what seems to be coming? There's a real temptation for us to say, we've got to give our loyalty to political figures or parties that will, in exchange, protect us from what's going on. 
but that will inevitably compromise our identity, our calling, our morality, our witness, the values of Jesus' kingdom, and then we will become complicit with injustice and even partners in injustice. We'll be used and humiliated, and we will be worse off than before. And so Jesus says, if you give your loyalty to worldly powers, they will trample you. They will tear you to pieces. This is not going to go like you think it's going to go. Now, friends, we can offer our support and our partnership to the state, to our culture, to political parties. That's fine. I mean, I'm not saying that we have to completely disengage politically. Jesus isn't saying that. The church cannot, though, give our ultimate loyalty to politicians or to parties in exchange for promises of provision and protection. We cannot allow them to beat the drum that we follow. Voting is fine. Loyalty is not, right? Loyalty requires that we support candidates and parties even when they do the wrong thing according to our kingdom that we belong to because we don't want to hinder their power in some way that might mean that we are weakened. No, we have to be able to be honest about failures, even among those that we generally support what they are doing. The church cannot be loyal in the ultimate sense. We have to be willing to tell the truth and refuse to be co-opted by worldly powers. Now, friends, very rarely, I think, in the history of the world, have Christians been able to be enthusiastic about our candidates and about the leaders that rule over us. Uh, because there's always a mixed reality with any leader, even the most godly of leaders, they still fall short in some ways. They make mistakes. They let their power get abused in some way. And so Christians must be happily um, in favor of certain leaders and say, I prefer this. I think they're doing a better job. They're going to bring better justice. But we have to have a sobriety about those worldly powers. We have to have a grief when they mess up and when they screw up and not defend them against all criticism. We've got to bring our politics down a level, right? We should pursue justice. That's absolutely part of the Christian call. But we have to have a sober idea about what we can bring about through worldly powers. The church's greatest witness our greatest ability to bring justice in the world is through our countercultural communities that live in ways that counter the kingdoms of this world. That's the witness that influences more than anything else. So um, be careful how you hold your politics, how you entrust yourself to political leaders and parties, and also to just culture more generally. The church can be, um, in every place, can be happy that we belong to a particular nation or culture. That's a good thing. We love our culture. We love where we come from. And it's, it's okay to value that and to, to want to preserve much of what is um, part of our culture. But we cannot ever look to our culture and its particular arrangement as the ultimate way that the world should be. We have to, again, not entrust ourselves to a particular way of life, to a particular way of, of arranging society. We have to always say our ultimate loyalty is to Jesus and to his kingdom and avoid attempts to get in, in coercive battles about who has control. Now, with all that said, we have to ask ourselves, okay, if we're not supposed to entrust ourselves to worldly powers, then who's going to care for the church? Because we're obviously still in danger. Who can we entrust ourselves to as God's people, as individuals? And that's the second thing I want us to see, which is um, uh, patron potter. Okay, it's a weird title for a second point, I know. But potter just means father, okay? So I want us to think about God, our father, 
as our patron. And look at verses 7 through 11, where Jesus, I think, teaches us in this way. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. And that you there is plural. It's y'all, okay? So I'm going to read the rest of it like that. And y'all will find. Seek, and y'all will find. Knock, and it will be open to y'all. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Or to put it differently, which of you, which of y'all, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If y'all then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to, the, to those who ask him? Jesus is saying here that we are to look to God the Father as our patron. Right? All this, like I just read, all these instructions are collective. He's talking to us as a community. He's saying, you are tempted to look to these worldly powers to protect you and keep you safe. But I'm telling all of you, look to your heavenly father. And so he says, pray. That's what he's getting at in these three words, ask, seek, and knock. Right? And the context informs what he is telling us to ask for. He's saying, if you need protection and provision, ask your heavenly father, right? And, and he says later on, I mean, he's going to give you all that you ask for. He's going to give you protection. He's going to give you um, provision. And later in this very gospel, he says, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is promising that God will care for his church. And he, he makes this argument following this from a lesser thing to a greater thing. He says, if, if you who are evil, you're, you're flawed people, you're self-centered you know, but even you, evil fathers, know how to give your children good gifts, right? You're not, they ask for one thing, you're not going to give them something that looks like that, but it doesn't going to help them at all, right? They ask for bread, you give them a stone, or they want a fish, you give them a, a serpent. That no, no father's going to do that, and, and you're an evil father. How much more is your heavenly father? How much greater is he? How much um, more good is he than you? Now, um, I'm a horrible gift giver. We were just lamenting this uh, last night, Sally and I. We went to a birthday party, and we're just like, oh, I've got to give a gift. We're terrible. I'm terrible. I'll just keep it at that. I won't put Sally in this. I'm terrible at giving gifts. Okay, but every once in a while, I, I you know, like a birthday or Christmas, I, I still make sure, very much with Sally's help, that our kids get something, right? That they get some good gift. And so if, if even I can pull off a basic, decent gift every once in a while, how much greater can God in heaven give good gifts to his children, right? That's the, the point Jesus is making. He is promising, promising us that God the Father is our proper patron as, as a church. He's the one that we show loyalty to. He's the one that we go to and we ask for, for, for provision and protection. Now, um, some people today, I would say, um, one of the reasons they really resist becoming Christians or staying Christians is that they see the way that Christians have become mixed up politically and they feel like the church is compromised and they don't trust it. And I, I get that. I, I completely see why that is something that makes people hesitant to join churches and to follow Jesus. But I think this passage shows us that when that happens, the church is failing to live up to its own teaching. This is not some criticism that, um, that you're bringing from outside the church. It is part of the church's own teaching that we should not be mixed up and compromised in our loyalty with worldly powers. And I would say that um, if you're in that place, you ought to also examine the degree which your own foolish loyalty is shaping your own political ideology and what you trust. 
The message Jesus wants us to get at here is that the church and all of God's creation should entrust themselves to God as Father and not to worldly powers. And we should turn to this Father in prayer and ask him for what we need, ask him to protect us and to give us our basic needs. So this passage fundamentally is another call in this Sermon on the Mount to pray. When we feel afraid, when we feel threatened, when we're in danger, we are called to look to God and to pray, to ask him for what we need. That's the very first thing Jesus says, ask, pray, seek him. That means pursue God and his will for us. Knock, that means act, take risks, uh, pursue godly things in godly ways and see how God provides for your needs. So prayer is, is one of the ways we've got to apply this passage, but I also want to in, invite you to just think about the inputs in your life and how that's shaping your disposition before God, right? What, what are, what's the TV that you watch or the radio or the podcast or the newsletters that are talking about the world around us and how are they impacting you? What effect do they have on you? Are they stoking anger in you? Are they stoking fear in you? Are they driving you to prayer? Because that's where um, Jesus is calling us to go. Uh, it's not like there's not dangerous stuff going on. I'm not, I'm not denying that at all. But we don't need to live looking at all these fearful things going on. We need to live in this posture of dependent prayer on our Heavenly Father. That's what prayer is. It's a posture of dependence. It's entrusting ourselves to God. And that is how we handle our anger and our fears. We take them to the Heavenly Father. Now, that's all well and good, and that's kind of what the passage teaches. But there's something deeper that we have to get to if this is going to actually impact us in any way. And that's asking the question, well, why should I trust God? Why should I trust him to give me provision and protection? Why should I not entrust myself to these worldly powers? You say they're going to trample me, but sometimes God has put me through things that makes it seem like he's trampling over and so the last thing I want us to see today is that um, Jesus is telling us that God our Father is good. And it's, it's there in that question in verse 11. And I, and I would argue that really um, our whole lives, all of us, it revolves around this question. How do we view God? Do we believe, do we trust, do we know him to be good? How do we view him? I mean, who do you think he is on a real functional level, on a deep emotional level? What does your gut tell you about who God is? So many of us, and I think this is natural as sinners to view God this way. We view him as stingy. We view him as angry. We view him as malicious, as maybe uncaring, as perhaps reluctant or maybe distant or unwilling to help or to provide, or to care for us and for the church. That is our baseline attitude towards God. And we obey and we, we do what we're supposed to do, but partly that comes from this place that we feel like we have to pacify a God who is not that great a guy, but he's really powerful. Some of us view God, uh, maybe not that way. Maybe we say, yeah, he's great, but he's just absent. He's just unconcerned. He's not paying attention to what I am going through, what the church is facing. 
And that's especially true for those who have grown up um, where your dad or people that were supposed to care for you were not around. And so you, you learn to be hyper vigilant, to take charge, to always be prepared. And so you've kind of learned to function never at rest, taking care of yourself because you, you know, it's like, yeah, God's great, but he's not that involved in my life. And what I want to argue today is that our political and our cultural engagement is grounded in this view of God. How we see him deep, deep down plays out in what we look to, what we entrust ourselves to. And it fundamentally shapes our view of worldly powers. And my job, really, this is, if you want to know what I do, what the elders are here for, this is the basic job we have. And that is to proclaim to you and to persuade you and myself, ourselves, to know and to believe and to trust that God is good and that he gives his children good gifts. That is my whole job, to convince you, to help you see the goodness of God and to help you answer this question in the way Jesus intends it. How much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I want you to have a deep confidence in God's love and goodness. That is what Jesus wants for you. And so here are two basic reasons why you should entrust yourself to God the Father and not to worldly powers. The first is that God is the good creator who gave you the good gift of life. Now, obviously, you know that, right? We all, yeah, if you're here, you know that. Yeah, God's the creator. But this is something that is so easy to overlook and to forget. In fact, it's part of our sinful nature to not give thanks to God for the good things he gives us every day. And the fundamental thing he has given us is the gift of life. And God did that not because he needs you. You have to understand this. God does not need you. He didn't create you because he was lonely or he was empty and he needed something from you. God is this overflowing fountain of life, love, and joy. And he made you as an overflow of his generous goodness. Your life is gift. God doesn't need anything from you. It's an overflow. Your life is a gift. Do not lose sight of that fact. He has given you this gift to enjoy as you know the one who gave you that life. And secondly, God is gracious. He offers life to those who wasted and are wasting that first gift. All of us have refused to give thanks to our creator and to trust him. All of us turn to, uh, for, for, for provision and protection to things that God has made. All of us have become like dogs, devouring other people and tearing each other apart in order to get what we think we need. All of us have become like pigs that trample each other in our greed. But God gives good gifts even in the face of our evil. He gave us the greatest gift of his one and only son that we would have eternal life. The world took this holy thing, Jesus Christ, and they threw it to the dogs. We cast Jesus to the worldly powers to be trampled. And while suffering, Jesus continued, Peter tells us, to entrust himself to the Father. So much of our fear in life comes from concern for our children, does it not? We worry about them. We want them to live and have a good life. And we worry about how things are going. It's easy as a church to think about, oh, how is this going to impact our kids? But friends, God gave his precious only son for us. And because he gave up his life, we can trust him and entrust ourselves to him. 
What greater and more costly gift could God have given than his only son? And it's because of that that we can entrust ourselves to him. Now, I've faced a number of hard things in my life, as I know many of you have. And like me, I'm sure you have asked the question, uh, where is God? Where is he in this, right? And if you look over history, you can say there are times when the church has been blotted out from certain places. And where was God in that? And I don't have the immediate answer for that. I don't know exactly why God did what he did here and there in your life or in this nation, in this place. But God knows what we ultimately need better than we do. And he promises to work all things together for the good of those who love him. His promise of provision and protection is ultimately about him bringing us through death in resurrection into new life. And that's why Paul tells us that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not poverty, not joblessness, not your failures, not your addictions, not your foolish decisions, not your failed marriage or a poor parenting decision or a whole season of poor parenting, not your trauma, not demons, not worldly powers, not even death itself. Nothing can separate us from the love of the good God who made us and gave his son for us. This is why, and I mean, this is so simple. Churches often just say, God is good. And people say all the time. That's true. It's so simple and it's so true. God is good all the time. God is love through and through. That's why the Jesus Storybook Bible, summarizing the whole scripture, says his love is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Friends, he has set his love on the church and he is not going to let her be overcome. So we can trust him and turn to him in times of trouble. And we do not need to live in fear of what is going on around us. So here's the unmistakable sign that you're coming to trust that God. And you're starting to look to him and entrust your life to him. And that's that you begin to pray. If you're praying, even if it's crying out saying, God, where are you? I don't understand this. Then you are beginning to entrust yourself to him. You ask him. This is what I think I need. This is hard. I don't know how to deal with this. Give me what I need. You seek his perfect will. You ask according to that. You knock, you act in your life, seeking his will, trying to go in the direction you believe he's calling you to go. And you can be confident that God will bring you through all that you go through, even death itself, and he will raise you up because he is good. You can turn to God for what you need, whether that's provision or forgiveness or healing whether it's something done against you or something you've done to other people. If you need belonging or joy or safety or identity or belonging or freedom and power, will he not give you all things? And friends, if you trust in Jesus, then you are holy. And you don't need to give yourself over to anything else because you belong to God. So here at this table, we see the Father's goodness and love. We see that he has given us his son whose body was broken and his blood was shed so that we might live forever with him. He was trampled on and torn to shreds by Rome 
so that we would live and have all that we need. And in this provision right here, we get just a little taste of the fact that we are more than conquerors. We are beloved children of the King who will feast with him in the resurrection. Let's pray together. You are a good father. And we thank you that you have given us your one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We rejoice that nothing can separate us from your love, Father. And so help us by your spirit to entrust ourselves to nothing and no one but you. Teach us to be a people of prayer, to bring every need to you, even in our darkest hours, even when you seem distant from us. Help us to cry out to you and to ask, and Lord, then give us what we need. We thank you for this table where we uh, taste and we see your promises to us in Jesus Christ. That you love us because you have sent your good son to die for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.